Stop. Now we're going to start doing that to Scott. Thank you. I want to welcome you all, and especially our guests. I believe you're here with a purpose and a reason today, especially to celebrate New Year's. No, I'm not talking about the Christian New Year. I am, sorry. Oh, man, I just blew it. I'm not talking about the Chinese New Year, the American. I'm talking about the Christian New Year. That's how it was supposed to land. See, today is the Sunday before Advent. And on Advent, you know, we're, we're expecting, we're waiting for the Christ to come. And that's the beginning of the Christian calendar. But today, the, the Sunday before Advent, is Christ the King Sunday. And it's like the Christian New Year. It's the capstone of the year, the Sunday where we celebrate the life of Christ and the mighty work that Christ has done in us and through us. Today, I believe Christ wants to celebrate the great victory he's won for us, won for us through one of the greatest failures the world has ever seen, Jesus on the cross. Have you ever thought about Jesus' work on the cross as failure? Likely not, as not to disrespect the sacrifice or appear heretical, which is probably a good decision. But I tell you this morning that Christ achieved a great victory by disgracing himself on the cross, failing so that we, God's children, may be more than conquerors, inseparable from God through our failures. For how else would mercy come except through failure? Is failure a regular part of your life? If so, that's something to be thankful for this Thanksgiving weekend because you are in the right place. You have come to worship a God who understands failure and has chosen failure as a means of his mercy. So let us be free to be failures before Jesus this morning so mercy may fall upon us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be opening us up, making us willing to receive this hard and difficult word that your mercy has been prepared for us because you anticipated our failure. Lord God, open us up to receive your word today so that we may be changed in our hearts and change our lives. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Today, we're looking at three chapters of Romans, 9 through 11. It's difficult to preach on any three books of the Bible, but, you know, like three chapters of Romans, super dense. So how are we going to approach this? I'm not going to do expository, reading every text, every scripture verse. No, we're going to pull out the main themes. And the primary theme that's summed up in the title is this, mercy on whomever I choose. It's God's choice on whom he'll have mercy on. So who's that? Well, that's summed up in our main idea. The only criteria to be offered God's mercy is to have failed. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. Mercy, then, is only meaningful to the willing, not to the worthy. Mercy, willingness, failure. Which of these words is God's spirit pointing you towards even now? Listen again. Mercy, willingness, 
failure. Each one of these words are thematic in our text, so we'll hit all of them. But be aware of the one God's spirit is kind of peeking in your heart. It is there that perhaps God wants to do a transformative work. Let's begin with mercy. Mercy and grace are usually used interchangeably. Although similar, they are distinct. So what's the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy withholds punishment for sin. Grace offers an unearned gift. Mercy withholds punishment for sin. Grace offers an unearned gift. It's like when I was growing up and my dad said he would pay me to mow the lawn every week. Well, I did it a few weeks in a row, but in the heat of the summer and no water, the lawn wasn't growing that much, so I decided to skip a week and still got paid. Then I skipped another week and still got paid. In the middle of the following week, my dad finally called me out. This is what he said. He said that he paid me because I said I'd done the work, even though he knew I was lying. That was grace. And then he didn't even punish me for lying, even though his lecture on responsibility was punishment enough. Now, since he did not punish me for lying, that is mercy. From this situation, I felt two things we often feel when we sin, guilt and shame. Just like mercy and grace, we often use guilt and shame interchangeably, but they're different. So what's the difference? Guilt says, that was stupid of me to do. Or shame says, I am stupid. I felt guilty for scheming and lying to my dad, so I said to myself, that was stupid. And I felt shame for being okay taking advantage of his trust. I found myself saying, I am stupid. Who can resonate with this internal dialogue? Who has these phrases on loop in your mind every day, every interaction? Both are deeply damaging in their own ways, but they have different antidotes. I would say generally, guilt needs mercy, or shame, shame needs grace. Guilt needs mercy, shame needs grace. This morning, we will focus on the that was stupid of me to do, guilt of our sins, our failures, and the mercy that God offers us. I would discover later that my dad's mercy had a bigger purpose than simply not punishing me. In the same way, God's mercy is pointing us to something more than just God's kindness. So what is that? What does God's mercy mean for us? To answer that, we need to first believe that God's mercy is really available to us, that God's mercy is really for us, not just as individuals, but as a community. In truth, though, Everything in us wants to avoid talking about mercy because we want to take, we actually want to take the punishment for our faults. We don't want to be left, we don't want to be let off the hook with God or with others. 
Someone else always takes the loss when mercy is offered. And so we find a way to avoid the subject. That's a foundational issue Paul addresses in these chapters. Our avoidance of God's determination to give us mercy. Has anyone ever told you you're asking the wrong questions or you're focused on the wrong things? Well, I have. And this came into sharp focus recently. You see, I'm pursuing becoming a licensed pastor here at Bethany Community Church. And in a recent interview with my coach, he just downright said to me, you know you're a black and white thinker, right? <laughs> Come on. That's, that's literally how I responded. I, I like, it was such a spot on comment. I was like, <laughs> so in my black and white thinking of receiving this comment, I was just like, no, I'm not. And yes, I am. <laughs> and you know, what, what was so hard was that he's a, you know, he's a relative stranger to me and it left me speechless. And it, it, what immediately came to mind is that's exactly what my wife and my parents have been telling me. <laughs> Honestly, in an instant, it brought into focus the things that they've been trying to tell me, which is this. When I'm convinced that I'm right, I shut down my hearing of others who were probably wrong and just do what I want anyways. This leads me to asking the wrong questions, being focused on the wrong things, as pride usually does. Paul is telling the Romans in these chapters, they are focused on the wrong things and asking the wrong questions. And he's going he's gonna to be patient with them, and he's going to respond to these questions by, and, and hopes that it would like lift the blinders that they have on to see what God is really doing. And the main thing he's trying to overcome in these questions is that is, is whether everyone, especially the Jews, will be saved. Stick with me here because this is a series of questions and responses that kind of summarizes at some level the 9 through 11 chapters. And it may be hard to follow at some level if you don't know all the context of the history of Israel and the Jews, but... I will summarize all of these, these four questions in our, in our summary, first summary point. So just stick with me. So here's one of the first questions. If Jesus is the goal of the law, which leads to righteousness for all who have faith in God, then what about the Jews who didn't know Jesus or didn't believe Jesus is the Christ? Will they have a chance to believe? Paul basically says, haven't the Jews and everyone, already been given a chance to believe? Romans 1 and 10 both say that God's truth has been made clear, one, through creation, and two, through all those throughout the millennia who have preached about God's grace and promises. Further, the Jews have been given ancestors like Abraham to follow, the laws through Moses, and the words of the prophets— all of whom are pointing to a Savior, the promise of a Messiah. Whether or not they saw the Messiah is not relevant because they still had a choice to believe in the promises of God, just like Abraham. Their choice to be disobedient and seek righteousness apart from God is based in obstinance not a lack of knowing God's promise. So then there's a subsequent question. 
But what about God's covenant to Israel to be their God and care for them always? Has God rejected them? Paul essentially says, what makes you think God is breaking his covenant with Israel or has rejected them? God will maintain his covenant to Israel for the sake of the believing ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who believed in God in faith, but has opened the covenant up to all people through Jesus Christ, us, the Gentiles. So then it's asked, if God has maintained his covenant to Israel through Jesus Christ, then why does it seem that Israel has been cut off from God? And Paul says way back in Romans 1 that God hasn't cut them off. God has simply released them to their heart's desires. God, it says, God abandoned them to their heart's desires to become righteous in their own eyes and through their own means. Israel has not been rejected by God, but God has released them to have hard hearts to Jesus being the Messiah. And this brings us to a final kind of fear-filled question. Is God making a choice between Israel and the rest of the world? Are some predestined to be in? Are some predestined to be out? Are some predestined to heaven or to hell? Paul says, absolutely not. Chapter 10, 6 through 7 says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven, because that's to bring Christ down. Or who will go down into hell? That's to bring Christ up from the dead. Paul says, you're focused on the wrong things. You're asking the wrong questions. No one is predestined to believe or not believe or predestined to go to heaven or to hell. This life with God is not focused on correctness or your abilities or right belief or even holy living. No, life with God is about a relationship and the acceptance, the acceptance that God has made a choice to be a relationship with you despite your failures, or better yet, through your failures. Romans 9 says this, I'll have mercy on whomever I choose to have mercy, and I'll show compassion on whomever I choose to show compassion. This is the foundational point Paul is making. Despite all that is hard to understand about the history of salvation with the Jews and the rest of the world, One thing is clear. All people have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all failed. Knowing this, God determined a way forward that would allow all people to be in relationship with him through their failures. So here's the summary in our first main point. If God has predestined people for anything, I tell you, it's not heaven or hell. They are predestined for mercy to be in a relationship with God. All who have failed have received mercy and forgiveness from God for their failures. All who who have received mercy and forgiveness from God for their failures. So what does this mean? It means exactly what it says, but we just have a hard time receiving that God is giving us mercy through our failures and actually saving us through our failures. 
We hate listing those things out because it feels so gross. But the truth is, that's what God is doing. Adultery, mercy, greed, mercy, lying, mercy, hatred, mercy, pride, mercy, abuse, mercy, relapse, mercy, addiction to porn, drink, drug, process, mercy, and more mercy. If you failed in these ways or any others, then you've been given the gift of God's mercy. If you've been given mercy, then I'll tell you what else you've been given. You've been given the Holy Spirit and the ability to confess that Jesus is Lord and to believe that God raised him from the dead. The Holy Spirit has been given to you, and in short, you've been given all you need from God to be the people of God and live in Jesus Christ. So then why are some still walking around as though they are dead? It's because those who believe they deserve mercy are blocked from it. It is those willing to admit their faults who are able to receive God's mercy. The worthy block it. You see, God has had a constant hand of invitation out to us all, always, but especially, I think, in this Roman series. God has been inviting us to come into deep and meaningful relationship with him. We have perhaps missed it because many weeks we been, have been dedicated to pointing out our sin to us, something that lands on us like condemnation. But if we see it through this lens, that it is through our failures that God is giving us mercy and salvation, then all those weeks of having our sin pointing out to us, that was really an invitation. It wasn't to berate us to be holier than we are. No, it was to help us acknowledge the sin and accept our need for God's mercy. God's chosen way to return us to him requires us to accept our own failures and have a willingness to belong to a community of failed followers a community of failed followers? That sounds weak and intrusive at the same time. I'd rather be told how to earn the right to be in the community than admit my faults to everybody. Who really wants to admit their faults anyways, especially to loved ones? Because what do you need to do after you confess those things? Don't you have to have a heart change? Don't you have to change your behavior? Don't you have to be recast into someone that is consistent with your confession? At times, it's easier to either refuse to be wrong (laughs) or act entitled for mercy so that uh, we don't have to face the challenge of change, right? But what's that old Chinese proverb? A tree that is unbending is easily broken. None of us wants to admit failure or be put into a position to change or to grow. But if we are not open and pliable, we will be broken in our pride. Paul uses an analogy of a clay potter to show the difference between the people who are willing to receive mercy and those who act entitled or unbending. Both are given more of what they are. Here it is in Romans 10. Does the clay say to the potter, why did you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have the power over the clay to make one pot for special purposes and another for garbage from the same lump of clay? 
What if God very patiently puts up with pots made for wrath that were designed for destruction because he wanted to show his wrath and make his power known? What if he did this to make the wealth of his glory known toward pots made for mercy, which he prepared in advance for glory? We are the ones God has called. Paul's language leans into God's choice of what he can make clay slash people into, some for special purposes and some for garbage. This certainly sounds like some are predestined for heaven and hell, no? But he's already spoken against that idea and reminds us that we've, we are all predestined for mercy. So what, what is Paul saying here? I think, he's, I think he's focusing on the clay's willingness to be pliable or not. When a potter sets out to make a pot, they have a vision in mind about how that pot will turn out, its shape and its purpose. Sometimes in, in the midst of casting that pot, it's not taking the right shape and it, and it falls apart. It's not unusual, not nothing to berate the clay about. It will happen. But the potter knows what to do. As long as the clay has remained pliable, willing to be reshaped, then the pot can be reworked into another pot. This process can repeat and repeat as long as the clay is willing. The clay can be worked long enough to take shape and have a special purpose. But if the clay dries out and hardens, what is it good for? If it is too hard to be worked and shaped into a pot with special purpose, what is it good for? I tell you, it's good enough to be tossed aside and broken into shards. Those who are willing to be reshaped after a failure are the ones who really receive mercy. Mercy holds a great gift for the willing. The gift of being forgiven the failure, yes, but also the gift of a community of others who have failed. For the community who is open with failure and accepts their need for God's mercy, they will be bound together in failure and vulnerability. They will be bound together believing in God's provision and open to what Jesus can do through the Holy Spirit. This is one of the bigger things mercy is enabling for the community who are willing to receive it. So I admonish us, let us not be like Jesus' hometown, who because of their unbelief, Jesus could not do any great work there. No, I would admonish us, let us be like Nineveh, that sinful city, who when upon hearing the good news from Jonah, repented and turned into God's mercy. They no doubt became a community filled with God's spirit, a community like a house full of God's power through mercy. Lights off. Lights on. <laughs> Sorry. If you're willing to be a community open with, with our failures, then God will be open with his mercy, his spirit, and will belong both to God and to one another. And all of this through our failures. Can you imagine anything less appealing than confessing our failures to one another. But God, God in his perfect wisdom, determined we couldn't overcome our own failures and knew we couldn't attain freedom except through failure. 
God knew we needed a means to return to him at the level of failure, the level that we live at. God sent Jesus to show us the way, a great mirror causing us to look deeply at ourselves, not to shame us, no, but so that we can be healed and saved. God sent Jesus to give us freedom through failure. At the end of these three chapters, Paul says this, God has locked up all people in disobedience in order to have mercy on all of them. This year in Montgomery, Alabama, the Legacy Museum and National Memorial for Peace and Justice opened up. Both the museum and the memorial are dedicated to America's history of enslaving and lynching black people and to African Americans humiliated by racial segregation and Jim Crow. The museum and memorial were founded by the Equal Justice Initiative. The group is the foremost authority on racial terror lynchings in America. Their efforts have not only changed precedent in the legal system, but have shown how racial terror lynchings marginalize black Americans through fear and domination with ripple effects through the centuries. When asked about why build a museum and memorial to victims of racial terror, the Equal Justice Initiative's founder and lawyer, Brian Stevenson, said, The country cannot heal until it confronts the truth of what happened, especially in the South. Our nation's history of racial injustice casts a shadow across the American landscape. This shadow cannot be lifted until we shine the light of truth on the destructive violence that shaped our nation. He goes on to say that his personal motivation springs from the experience of representing people in courts and beginning to see the limits of how committed our courts are to eradication, eradicating discrimination and bias. I want to get to the point where we experience something more like freedom, I don't think we are going to get there until we create a new consciousness about our history. There's that word, freedom. Freedom to have a new conscience, but only through confronting the truth of our dark past. Stevenson is onto something. Here we'll have a picture of the memorial. You'll see that the monuments are like headstones, but they're lifted up high and you actually walk underneath them to see the names of the victims and how they were killed. When asked about why they did this, Stevenson said, lifting up those monuments was really important because the people who carried out lynchings could have murdered people and buried them, their bodies in the ground. They could have hidden the evidence, but they didn't want to do that. They, lift, they wanted to lift the people up over the entire community so every black person would be menaced and traumatized and terrorized. God has locked up all people in disobedience in order to have mercy on all of them. In the same way, innocent black men, women, and children were hung like criminals from trees, so also Jesus, the sinless lamb, was stretched out on a tree condemned as a criminal. Jesus hung from the cross as king and Messiah, and it was the biggest failure the world had ever seen. 
but what was meant to terrorize would sanitize those who had eyes to see it. It was precisely through this failure that Jesus binds himself to our sins and failings and forgives them. More than that, he resurrects and transforms them, making our failures the means of salvation and righteousness. The means of salvation and righteousness. It is through our failings that we realize our sin. Repent and come to know the endless and beautiful mercy and forgiveness of God. If the one we worship has known our failure on the cross, how much more will those who believe in Jesus know his victory through the resurrection? So let me tell you this truth, as Paul says, as I do not want you to be unaware of this secret, God has locked up all people in disobedience in order to have mercy on all of them. It is God's design to save all people through their failures. If Jesus will have mercy on a country who lynched innocent black people, how much more will God have mercy on you for your sins? Bethany, do not harden your hearts today to this good news. Be willing. Remain open. Admit your sins. Repent and turn into God's mercy, which is waiting for you at your doorstep. It and Jesus are knocking at your door, and not just your individual doors, but the doors of this church. Will you open the door of your failures and be healed? Will you open the home of your heart and let the Holy Spirit fill you with the power and the peace that nothing can separate you from God, not even your own failures? For I tell you this, if this community, this entire community repents of its sins and accepts God's mercy, there will be a Holy Spirit-empowered revival, healing and transforming us beyond anything we can do for ourselves. This is the biggest thing God's mercy can enable. The Spirit of God falling upon a repentant community to put them on mission for God. For God promises that any who will believe will receive the Holy Spirit. So let us by faith believe in God's promises and in his Son, Jesus Christ, so the Spirit may fall upon us so we may be healed. I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up as we prepare for our response this morning. Inside your bulletin, you should have a little card. On one side of that card... I want you to write a word. I suggested that perhaps God was doing a work through you through one of the three words, mercy, willingness, failure. But perhaps God has given you other words. I'd encourage you, write down the word that God is putting on your heart, the words God is putting on your heart. And if you are so willing on the other side, write down a failure that God is giving you mercy through. And today, what we're going to do as a community, we're gonna, we'll stand, once you've filled out your cards and come down the aisle, just like we do for communion, 
and put them in this terracotta pot. This pot that was destined for my garbage bin has now been given special purpose to receive what you've written. I've also brought a piece of art from my office. It depicts Christ on the cross. And it has these swaths of color, stripes of color, all across it. And the artist told me that that was a reference to that Isaiah text. By his stripes, we are healed. His stripes are our stripes, and through our collective failures, we receive mercy and healing. So today, let us be courageous, confessing our sins, passing them to Christ, and believing that it is not to our shame, it is not to our shame, but it is to God's glory that he would decide, choose to give us mercy through those failures. Will you receive it? Will you say yes? Let us worship the Lord.